Well, let's turn in our Bibles and we'll go ahead and begin. I didn't print the notes. This message is one that I've carried in my heart for many years. It's the first message I ever preached, maybe 2008 or 2009, in our church environment. I'll share a little bit of my story and then share from 2 Chronicles 7.14, which is if you spend any time in revival and prayer circles, you'll hear about this passage. And so if you want to go ahead and turn there, it's a very simple teaching, but I'll share with you that it's a, a life message for me. And when I do these times of instruction with our interns, more than even the revelation, I desire to impart something of the heart of God about what we do and why we do it. And so just to share a little bit of my story, I, I grew up here in Atlanta. I grew up in an affluent part of our city and was privileged to be able to have a good education in a private school. It was a Christian private school. And we would have chapel every Wednesday. And I grew up in a denominational church. And I had been touched by God in different moments. I believed God was real. Uh, but in my education and being around so many different environments that were religious, but not necessarily bringing you into the intimate contact with the person of Jesus and the presence of the Holy Spirit, you get all kinds of different strange ideas about God. And there was a season of deep brokenness where my heart returned to the Lord in college after spending many years away from Him. And during that time, I began to be awakened to God's voice and I became very hungry for Him. And in the same way that I pursued uh, pleasure, living a, a life of travel and food and living for my own comforts and satisfaction of dating relationships and all those different things that I pursued ambition and, and my career and the things to set myself up successfully for the future and I'd gone through these cycles of pursuing other things and I found all of them I didn't satisfy and then I, I found in my brokenness um, some difficult family circumstances and the ending of an important relationship an important dating relationship in my life with someone that I thought I was going to marry I, I reached out to the Lord and began to experience His voice and His presence like I never had before. And it was in the midst of that that I realized I'm a very poor leader of my own life and I needed God to lead my life. And I just said, God, if you'll speak to me, I'll do whatever you tell me to do. And so over the course of, of about two years, I followed that path as radically as, radically as I could out of that deep place of brokenness. And by the grace of God, I'm continuing to try and just live attuned to his voice and his leadership, uh, not perfectly, but truly in faith and expectation. And, and during that time, God marked me with experiences that I now recognize both from church history and being around others that have been in similar moves of the Spirit. I experienced small moves of God's Spirit both in my life. There was a summer camp that I was involved in where God did some radical things in people's lives and then in ministry the next summer and learning what it meant to really pray in a way that apprehends heaven and sees God pour out his blessing. And then I got introduced to this little place called IHOP Atlanta mm -hmm. where they prayed night and day and I felt the presence of God so richly and I just said, this is where I want to be, Lord. And that was my calling, to part of my calling to this place. And so it was in that summer between the 2005, I met my wife, I got filled with the Holy Spirit, I had these radical encounters. And then the next summer, we ended up working at a camp in Texas. It's the summer of 2006. And I, I encountered this verse, and I don't remember who introduced it to me, 
but I made a commitment, I read it, and I said, I will experience this personally, and from the place of personally experiencing it, I, I believe this is going to overflow into the lives of others. And so I wrote Second Chronicles 7.14. They gave us like a camp backpack, and I wrote it on the back of the backpack, and I committed in that season to uh, rise early and truly pray and seek the Lord. And there was a group of counselors, and I would rise early and actually seek the Lord, and we began to see God move in radical ways, like words of knowledge and people, there were some times where there were actually demonic, it was a very evangelical camp, it wasn't a charismatic camp at all, but we had some children that ex- were experiencing demonic oppression and we saw the Lord move in deliverance and we just saw these different radical ways in which God was moving powerfully as we pressed into God and prayed for revival, prayed for a movement of His Spirit and so those experiences, those early experiences really marked me with hunger to not just read about the, the things in Scripture in the book of Acts or in the Gospels, but to see them, to see people delivered of demons, to see physical bodies healed. And in 2009, after about two years of really contending for the outpouring of the Spirit on staff here, we saw a small move of God's Spirit. We saw a renewal. And we had three or four meetings a week, and we saw over 500 significant healings during that time. I literally saw people's physical legs grow out. I saw uh, people's stigmatisms in their eyes get healed where they needed glasses they didn't need anymore. People's asthma get healed. There was a young woman who had gone on a missions trip to India and through a bizarre series of events had this debilitating sickness and she was uh, almost incapable of walking. And uh, she was prophesied to in one of our meetings, rise and, and walk. She was kind of sitting in the back of the room immediately strength restored to her body and this ailment that had plagued her debilitating sickness completely left her and she was able to walk normally that night for the first time in months and so just miracle after miracle after miracle for us you know going from maybe a dozen you know small miracles here and there to now hundreds of miracles was a significant outpouring of the spirit of God and I've just continued to, as I've grown in leadership, see God's hand through, you know, movements in our city of racial reconciliation and doing a lot of organizational leadership. But I will feel as though at the end of my ministry assignment, if I do not stand before the Lord as an intercessor who helped birth revival, I, feel, I will feel no matter how faithful I've been as a leader, organizational leader, preacher of the word, I will feel as though I failed in one of my primary assignments because God so deeply marked me early on that the most effective and transformative, uh, the, the anointing for effective ministry and transformation comes out of that deep place of intimacy with God that is both a place of intercession and a place of intimacy where we're, we're wounded by a vision that is much higher than what we accomplish in our own strength. And whether that's supernatural healing, whether that's deliverance, or the transformation of people's lives through the gospel, and when we experience that gap, that painful gap between what the Bible describes should be our inheritance as believers, and what we actually experience in terms of his power, we begin to go, this is unjust, this is wrong, this is painful, and instead of putting our confidence in human means and just saying, you know what, that doesn't exist anymore, or even worse, saying that it exists, but don't, not really believing or contending for it. And we just kind of make peace with our barrenness, as opposed to letting our barrenness drive us into the place of intercession, 
where we can actually begin to touch God and touch heaven in such a way that power gets released and the presence of God gets released. We actually see the kinds of things that the Bible promises us. And so you'll even hear it as I start to tell, talk about it. I'll, I'll agitate myself <laughs> because there is such a deep longing in me to see the wonders of God, to see the greater works that were promised. And when you go back to this Old Testament passage that I'll read in a moment, I think we see a formula. And I embraced that formula in that summer of 2006. And I saw my effectiveness in ministry multiplied in a supernatural way. And only later would I come back and reflect on the formula that is actually in the, the, the very words of this verse. It's not complicated. It's not complicated to see God revive your heart. It's, it's not complicated to move in a place of, of deep power and presence and connectedness to the Lord. It, it is attainable for each and every one of you in this room. And if you will touch it, it will impact everyone around you. And, and if we will touch it together, uh, we will see transformation in our community. And then as churches all across the city do it, the heavens will open and God's blessing will be poured out. And so we, we can't force God to release his power in that way but we can wrestle with God. You know, we can't force God to release historic revival. I believe there's sovereignly appointed times when God sends winds and times of refreshing, but we can t contend in such a way that the fullness of God's promises, they rest on us in our, our unique sphere of responsibility. And I, I believe I've seen God do that in my own life in seasons when I was really pressing into him. I could not have willed my way into that faithfulness and that pressing in that hunger being a move of God in my city, right? I could not will for it to happen, but but being in that place where you're leaning in is a, is what God requires in terms of the preparedness of heart to be used in that that way. And there are many people that are unprepared that are caught up in moves of God's spirit historically, and that is an amazing thing that He is so merciful to us when we're unprepared. He moves us from dull in heart to vibrant in heart through the course of a movement of God's spirit. So by no means does our unpreparedness disqualify us from participating, but I want to be more than a participant. I want to be more than a person that God has to revive. I want to be the catalyst that actually breaks through in the heavenly places and sees God pour out his blessing. And so in 2 Chronicles 7, we see that there, this is a moment generations in the making. David had prepared all the, the, the wood and the gold and the, the people and envisioned them to build the temple and now Solomon has actually done it. He's completed it and, and God has added to their labors his supernatural blessing of fires poured down from heaven and it says that the priest, it was a, a, a supernatural fire that carried a manifest glory with it and it says the priest could not stand in his presence to minister before the altar because of the, the weight and the power of God's glory in that place. And as good as that moment was, God visits Solomon that night and he gives him a caution. He says, there's a time coming when the people will depart from what you're seeing here. And the sense of God's glory and presence and power uh, will not be honored amongst my people. And when that happens, I'm telling you, when, when you're a diseased nation, when you're a wayward nation, when you're a wayward people, when you're wayward in heart, when you've turned away from me, this is the way back to and so when I've preached this before, I said this is the remedy for a diseased nation. It's God's prescription for a diseased heart. And he says, this is, what, this is what you do. I'll start in verse 12. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, 
I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. But when I shut up the heavens, there's no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. He says, this is what you need to do to return to me. And honestly, if you look at the condition of our nation where year upon year there's a more severe wildfire, there's a more severe drought, there's a, 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 a global pandemic now followed by another <laughs> pestilence, I go, at what point do we recognize that the disorder in creation is a result of the disorder in our hearts as a people occupying the land and that those to whom God meant to give dominion have we've worshipped idols We've not worshipped the true God. We've worshipped things that are false representations of who we are, either in our, our re- false religious zeal or in our uh, worship of self. And now God is, through pressure, going to continue to pressure us uh, until we return to him with all of our heart. And he welcomes us. And, of course, there's a New Testament paradigm that we as a people, when we turn to him, Though your sins are, it says in Isaiah, though your sins are like scarlet, I'll make them as white as snow. And that's the promise of the atonement that is ours in Christ. Now we don't need the blood of bulls or goats. We have the blood of mercy, uh, the blood of Christ that cries out. It's a better blood than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cried out judgment from the ground to God. The blood of Christ cries out for mercy on our behalf. So this is what the Lord spoke to Solomon, if my people are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sins, and will heal their land. So there are, there are kind of five qualifying things that you can do if you desire your heart to be revived. And then there are four things by which God responds. The first is, if my people who are called by my name. It's so imperative for us to understand that the responsibility to pursue God for revival is not upon the lost, it's upon the church. It's not if those people out there will only turn and obey the Lord. He puts the responsibility squarely upon the people who are called by his name. We in this room are the people who are called by his name. If my people are called by my name. And not just individually, but collectively. And so if, if a righteous remnant will arise with the cry in their heart, I desire to be the people called by his name who will take responsibility for the, for the decay within the church and within the culture and stand before him as an intercessor. They are the ones who get to avail the promises in the subsequent portions of this verse. If my people who are called by my name, those that identify with the Lord will take responsibility for the waywardness of their own hearts. This is echoed in Psalm 24. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who can actually come up into God's holy presence and make intercession? It's not the world. It's the ones who've been made in right relationship with him through the blood of Christ. And what are those people called to do first and foremost? This is the first and foremost this is the second requirement. So the first would be the unity of the people of God, and the second would be if those who are called by uh, the second would be humble themselves. Humble themselves. And what does humility look like? It looks like blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the humble, for theirs is, or the meek, for theirs is the whole earth. 
It looks like Jesus Christ himself, Philippians chapter 2, he who did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but made himself a bondservant, taking the, taking the likeness of a, of a human and humbling himself even to the point of death on a cross. And in the same manner, we ought to prefer one another. It's a complete emptying of ourselves of any confidence in the flesh, anything that would qualify us before God in our own righteousness, that we would actually come to him completely uh, in the book of Daniel, Daniel says that to, to us and to, to, to us, even though he was a man who is esteemed as righteous in his generation, he says to us belongs shame of face. You know, it's interesting if you read this and then you go and you look at the different figures throughout the, our heroes of scripture. You look at the prayer of Nehemiah, the attitude of Ezra, the great reformers and restorers, they all came to God with a deep posture of humility although they themselves were often regarded as righteous within their own generation. They never came before a holy God and said, God, I thank you that I am not like this man here, <laughs> which is what Jesus indicts among the Pharisees, right? And he says, but the one who humbled the Pharisee, the, uh, the, excuse me, the tax collector who humbled himself, beat his breast, tore his clothes, and said, God, have mercy upon me, I'm a sinner. He says, that man's prayers were heard. So if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, true humility is that we have nothing before God to that God that causes God to have any regard for us apart from his mercy and his grace. Humble ourselves. And then it says, pray and seek my face. So intercession and intimacy. That we actually, and it's interesting that those two things are distinct. He says, pray and seek my face. See, we don't just want God's hand, we want his face. We don't just want the demonstration of his power, we want, we want him. We don't want just the king's authority, we want the king. And so this idea that we pray from a posture of humility, we cry out to God, but that crying out to God is not as servants. We're crying out to him as those who are called as friends. Jesus said, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. We've been brought into the councils of the Lord. We're not just soldiers and generals. We're the bride of Christ. So we pray and we seek his face. We actually have the privilege of, we actually have the privilege of knowing his feelings. You know, if you ever read anything regarding communication you'll you'll learn that like 80% of communication is nonverbal right it's in the facial expression it's in the body language there's this place where as we seek god we're we're coming before him both to make our requests known to him but also just to know him just to see his face to perceive who he is corinthians paul writes you know, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God has shined in the face of Christ. It is in this place that we're not, just, we're not just beating upon the door of heaven with importunity, though that is the way Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. There is a place where he goes, you should be like a, you should be like a man who has no bread pounding on the door of his neighbor's house until his neighbor gives him bread for the wayward visitor who's come. You should be like the widow who gives the judge no rest until he finally 
answers her cry for justice. And he goes, but God in heaven is a just judge, not an unjust judge. And you're not a widow, you're a bride. And so for us, yes, we should pray with, with forcefulness and intensity and fervency and from the depths of our spirit cry out to God in desperation, yet at the same time remembering that we are not, we're not orphans, we're sons and daughters. And in that desperation, we already have victory. And that we as those who cry out to God with great fervency so that wrong things are made right, yes, we should care about that and we should weep over that, we should groan over that, and we should always remember at the same time we have the blessedness of living in the light of his face. So even when the weight of injustice becomes so great that it feels as though it could crush us, we can also be confident that every wrong thing will be made right, that we get to live in the light of God's face, that our salvation and eternal dwellings are secure and assured. And so there's this tension that we get to live in, that we get to both pray and we also get to seek his face. We get to ask him to be just and we also get to have him fill our hearts with peace and love and joy even in the midst of the most trying and difficult circumstances. So if we will come in unity, we'll humble ourselves, we'll pray with intercession, and we'll press in for intimacy to see the face of God. Then lastly, if we turn from our wicked ways, Evan Roberts, the great revivalist of the Welsh Revival in the early 1900s, he said he had like four rules for revival. He said, confess any known sin was the first one. He said, obey the Holy Spirit promptly. I can't remember where the other two are. <laughs> but the first, I'm sorry? Any known sin? Yes, confess any known sin. And I'll have to look them up for you guys. But I'm pretty sure there were three or four of them. But the two that I can remember right now are obey the Holy Spirit promptly and confess any known sin. And I think probably pray fervently was one of them. Very similar to what we find right here in this verse. We turn from wickedness. But we aren't only turning away from the ungodly things. We're turning towards God in that. We're turning towards his face and turning towards him in prayer. David, pray, search me and know me. Know if there be any evil way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We're asking God to reveal to us even the blind spots, the places we don't recognize, that our hearts are cold or distant. Charles Finney, the great revivalist, calls them their sins of commission and sins of omission. The sins of commission are the wrong things we know we do. Sins of omission are the things that are right that we know we neglect. And so if we will, in a united way, with humility, reach for God in intercession and reach for his face in intimacy with hearts that long to be rid of all stain and blemish of sinfulness, it's upon that, that sacrifice, that heart that is prepared as a sacrifice, God will release his fire of revival. He will release a fresh fire just as he did in that first day in the temple. He is looking for people to prepare themselves in this way. And if you prepare yourself in that way, you will be a landing strip for the Holy Spirit. You will be a, a house that is fit and ready for his glory to dwell in. And so he responds. He says, 
for the one who does this, he, he'll do four things. It says, I will hear from heaven. In 1 John it says, this is not the general kind of hearing, like we know God hears everything, right? We know he knows everything. When in this verse it says God hears us, it's the same kind of hearing that 1 John 5 describes. If, if we know he hears us, we know we have the request for which we asked, right? It's a responsive hearing. It's a hearing like when a child calls out to its, its mother and the mother comes running, right? It's a responsive hearingness. I will hear from heaven. And, and in his hearing of us, of our repentance, of our crying out, our seeking of his face, our united intercession and intimacy with God and our turning away, from, corporate turning away from wickedness. He says, I will hear from heaven. He says, I will forgive your sin. So he's going to nullify the negative. He'll remove the curse. He'll remove the transgression. He'll lift the weight of guilt. First John chapter one, verse, I believe it's seven through nine. It says that if we confess our sins one to another, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And I remember reading that Lord says, faithful and just means every time he will forgive us when we confess with a sincere heart. And it's just, it's right that he would do it because the price has been paid for our sins to be cleansed. And so if we will cry out to him, it says he will forgive our sin and then not only will he remove the, the stain, but he'll impart a blessing. It says he'll actually come and he'll heal your land. You actually will see the victory of the resurrection manifest in people's lives. And we, we have to talk about both sides of the cross. We have to talk about the cross where the flesh was crucified that gives us conviction and faith that our sin has no power over us anymore. And then we have to talk about the fact that he got up from the tomb and resurrection life is our inheritance, which means that we actually have the supernatural power of God, of a resurrected savior who answers prayer, who moves in healing through us, his same spirit, the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, now quickens our mortal body for the purpose of righteousness, it says in Romans 8. So where does the strength come from to not only avoid wickedness, but to do righteousness, works of justice, and supernatural uh, feats of the Holy Spirit. It's by the, the power of the one who rose Christ from the dead. The ultimate, the ultimate revival power that actually makes dead things come alive. I believe it's Acts 3, verse 19. Peter says that, uh, let's actually turn there. It's, a very, it's one of the top revival passages in the... New Testament. Acts 3, verse 19, this is Peter preaching. He says, Repent therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. So times of refresh, refreshing, and that Greek word, I believe, is anapsuxis, which literally means to restore breath to someone who is who's completely lost their breath because they've so overexerted themselves. And absuxus, so that times of refreshing would come from the presence of the Lord. There is refreshing that is released on the presence of the Lord to people that turn to him, repent of their sins, have their transgression blotted out, and then God releases that refreshing, that healing of the land. And the idea of the healing of the land is, is yes, that the judgments that were described would be abated, but also that righteous laws 
social constructs would reflect the kingdom of God, media, entertainment, government, education, business. God is not meant to be contained within the walls of our religious institutions. He's meant to touch every single sphere of society in which there are born-again believers carrying his spirit and a hunger and a thirst to see his presence manifest. And so revival is something that begins here, but it expresses itself, begins here in our hearts, should begin in the community of faith, and then it expresses itself throughout a city and throughout a nation. God puts no limitation on this verse. It's, it's amazing when you think about it. He's not talking what, sh- what applies to a nation surely should apply to an individual. He's saying if you will do this as a people, he'll send revival and transformation to the entirety of the, of the nation, to Israel. So surely it's true for you. And so in closing, that summer 2006 where I experienced such a reviving influence in my own heart, my camp counselor told me an anecdote. I don't know if to this day, camp director, I don't know if it... it uh, is actually a true story or not, but he said there was an old intercessor, and the story's a good story, so we'll just pretend like it was true. <laughs> so there's an old intercessor, and she went into her prayer closet, and she took ch- chalk on the on the floorboards of her, of her prayer room. She drew a big circle in chalk, and she stood in the middle of it. She said, revival begins here. Mm-hmm. And if revival does not happen here, it can't happen out there in my ministry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Revival must begin here. And that that story, that anecdote was a prophetic picture to me. And I embraced it that summer and I feel even freshly charged today to, as I share with you all, to not settle for anything less than a full inundation of God's presence, an immersion, a fresh baptism, a fresh outpouring of His Spirit and His presence in my life and my family. I don't want to be dull and complacent, live in anxiety and compromise dominated by my fears and disappointments. I want to live with a heart that is vibrant in God. I want to see when I pray for people, their bodies get healed. I want to see when people are dealing with oppression, when I rebuke it, it comes off. I think the only thing keeping that kind of expression from breaking forth in our lives is that perhaps we've not taken his promises as seriously as we ought to have. And we haven't stared at verses like this and said, Okay, am I pressing it in prayer? Am I pressing it in intimacy? Have I truly humbled myself and my heart before the Lord? Have I said, nothing's going to keep me from living in the light of your face today? And have we owned that together, individually and in the company that we're in? If the five of you together will say, we are going to be a revived internship. <laughs> we are going to, we're going to be hungry. We're going to cry out the fervency of your own life would catch the attention of every staff member and if every staff member said look at how the interns are producing are pr- pursuing God with all of their heart with passion and zeal you know maybe some of us who've been here a decade plus will get woken up and stirred in our own heart we'll begin to reach for God and then as we press in we reach for God maybe the, the people in our congregation on a Sunday would say look how desperate the staff is from the interns for the presence of God and they begin to say we're going to press in in a fresh way and we all give a stronger yes to God than we've ever given before. And now all of a sudden people in our places of education, in our workplaces, and in the places that we shop. And that's how a spark gets lit in one person's heart and catches fire to a whole community. I charge you 
you have a season where you have less responsibility than you probably have ever had before in ministry, some of you. Take this opportunity to, yes, rest and seek the face of God, have intimacy, but also to pursue God with great fervency and passion. So I'll close with prayer.